This is French Tech Podcast, where you'll find interviews of tech ecosystem actors sharing their stories with La French Tech London. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, as part of our Quantum series with the Deep Tech Group, we're welcoming Professor Alain Aspe, who's a French physicist noted for his experimental work on quantum entanglement. He's being interviewed by Anne-Gaël Schall from IBM and Pierre-Frédéric Jaffray, who's a board member and the lead of the Deep Tech Group for La French Tech London. Their conversation is followed by a Q&A with the volunteers who contribute to the Deep Tech Group. Have fun! First, I'd like to welcome you, Professor Alain Aspect. We are very pleased and honored to have you today for this podcast. Let me give a bit of background for our listeners. You are currently a professor at Institut d'Optique Graduate School and at École Polytechnique. You are a member of several science academies in France, in the US, in Austria, in Belgium, and you are also a member of the Royal Society in the UK. To start, there is one question that surely interests our listeners today. As the next big technical revolution, how will quantum information and quantum computing lead to the quantum engineering society, according to you? Uh, well, uh, I'm not an expert, you know, I am not a businessman, I am not a manager of industry, I am a scientist. So I can tell you what is happening, the second quantum revolution, why it is important, in which sense it's totally different from the first uh, quantum revolution. But if I could predict uh, what will be or not be the big market, maybe I wouldn't tell you, I would invest immediately in that, uh, in that field. But uh, uh, we'll follow you. <laughs> <laughs> contemplating the history, the history of the first a quantum revolution, which uh, I know quite well. I think that uh, development of uh, killing applications is always a big surprise, unpredicted. Before we set the stage of that second revolution, can you remind us about that first quantum revolution, how it all started? The first quantum revolution was initiated uh, by the discoveries of the scientists at the beginning of the 20th century, that to describe the microscopic world, you cannot rely on classical physics. You have to invent a new physics, quantum physics. And this quantum physics allows you to understand how matter is solid, how electric current flows in matter, how matter emits or absorbs light, and you have to invent new concepts. And in the 40s, uh, the best scientists were working on that, who got Nobel Prizes for that, invented new devices, transistors. And you realize that transistor was the first element of integrated circuits and of computers. They invented lasers. And uh, once again, the people who invented lasers and transistors were not young guy in a garage in California or elsewhere. They were the best scientists of the time, collecting Nobel <laughs> awards. Uh, you are certainly aware that uh, transistor and thus computer and laser and optical fiber are absolutely at the root of the modern information and communication society. The information highways rely on computers and optical fiber and laser. So this first quantum revolution 
described large ensembles of quantum objects. In a laser beam, you have billions, billions of billions, we like to say zillions of photons. Even in a small transistor, you have billions of electrons flowing simultaneously. And the first quantum revolution was describing the collective quantum behavior of these ensembles of photons, of electrons, etc. The second quantum revolution is based on the ability of the experimentalist to isolate, observe, manipulate single quantum objects. This started in the 1970s and they could isolate and observe single electron, single ion, single photons, single atoms. Maybe I repeat myself, I don't know. And uh, as soon as you can manipulate objects one by one, you can also study fascinating phenomenon on which I work for my PhD thesis, which is entanglement. When you have two quantum objects, and you let them interact for a while and you separate them, now they are entangled. And even if you take them far away, they are still entangled. And these entanglement make them possess much more information than the addition of the information that you have on each of them. There is more in the wool than in each of them. So when you have two of them, is just an academic curiosity. But when you have 10 or 20 or 30, the amount of information that you can put into entangled object is absolutely amazing. Thank you, this is really interesting. Uh, and Gail, if you allow me, I'd like to ask Professor Aspe um, just one quick question. We understand the, the space uh, in which you describe entanglement as a dimension. But can you give us some numbers to help everyone better grasp the massive opportunity behind it? If you have one qubit, uh, dimension is two, like a plane, right? Uh, but what about two? If you have two entangled qubit, the dimension is four. It's already more than our own space, okay? If you have 10 entangled qubits, dimension is 1,000. 20 dimension, 1 million. 30 dimension, 1 billion. So let us suppose we have 30 entangled qubits we can put a huge amount of information into this only 30 qubits, okay? And first, you can store a huge quantity of information. And second, if you do an operation, a transformation on these 30 entangled qubits, you have a massive processing. This is called parallel processing, massive parallel processing. So all this is the fundamental principles. Now you have reality. Reality is there is no ideal quantum bit. So you have to do with real quantum bits, which have defects, and all the object of the present effort is to do as much as we can with the real quantum bits that we have. So if you want to look into the future, there are two scales of time. Very long scale, decades, I think. The universal quantum computer. If we could have, let's say, 50 ideal quantum bits, 
we could implement fantastic algorithm that the people in computer science develop. And today, where are we exactly? At, uh... I'm going to tell you. When I contemplate this, I feel in the same position where I was 30 or 40 years ago when we were discussing about the detection of gravitational waves with huge interferometers, kilometer long, etc., etc. It was crazy. Uh, there was no basic physical law saying that it is impossible, but it sounded uh, so extraordinary that we had no idea when it would happen. 40 years later, it happened. Okay, So I feel regarding the universal quantum computer in the same position. No fundamental physics law says that it is impossible. So I believe that one day it may happen, but no idea of when we are going to really develop the technology. Now, we're in the stage of using noisy, that is imperfect quantum bits. So it's called NISC, Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum Computing, okay? okay. And the idea is we have qubits, they are what they are, what can we do with them? There are several things we can do. We can do quantum communication with two sides on quantum communication. First, quantum cryptography, which is the fact that the security of the communication does not rely on the hypothesis that your adversary has about the same mathematical and technical level as you. Let's suppose that we have an enemy who has found a theorem in mathematics allowing him or her to factorize rapidly number. He can break immediately all, our, not all, but many of our security codes, okay? Or maybe they have a computer uh, one million times faster than ours. They can break our codes. With quantum cryptography, you do not rely on the hypothesis that your enemy is at the same technological and mathematical level. It's the very laws of quantum physics which says that it is absolutely safe. You can tell me, uh, okay, quantum mechanics maybe is not the ultimate. Yes, sure, maybe it's not the ultimate, but uh, theory. But up to now, we have found absolutely no failure of quantum physics. So up to the point when quantum physics fails, quantum cryptography is absolutely safe. This is the first point. Okay. Quantum communication is also very important because if you have quantum computers, even, approximate quantum noisy quantum computers. You want to have them communicating. And ordinary links are a problem. So it would be better to let them communicate by quantum communication. So this was for quantum communication. And let us now go to quantum computing. So in fact, the noisy intermediate scale quantum computing is not really computing. It's simulation. That's the original idea of the great physicist Richard Feynman in 1982, just when I was finishing my thesis on entanglement. And uh, Feynman recognized in 1982 that entanglement was something fantastic, unbelievable, mysterious. And Feynman being Feynman, as soon as he recognizes that something is surprising, he says, oh, it's so surprising we should use it for something. 
and he laid the basic ideas of quantum simulation. The idea is the following. If I want to describe a complicated ensemble of particles, many electrons in a piece of matter, uh, atoms and electrons in a big molecule that you want to use as a drug, for instance. Okay, it's already big molecules. We know how to write the equation describing uh, the properties of, not describing the property, the equations from which we should be able to derive the properties of the molecules. This equation is a well-known Schrodinger equation, but writing the Schrodinger equation for 100 atoms and uh, many electrons is just a nightmare. It's hopeless to try to, uh, to solve this equation. The idea of quantum computing is to implement physically in the laboratory an ensemble of quantum particles which mimics, which simulates the behavior of the molecule you want to study. There are other problems which are interesting to simulate. It's problems of optimization. For instance, it's well known, the traveling salesman, he or she has to visit 30, 40 cities. What is the best trajectory? Solving that is an extremely complicated problem with an exponential growth of the time of calculation with a number of cities. It's known as a difficult problem. And these problems of optimization are problems which apparently can be solved with quantum simulators. There is an example I like very much and I really, well, I've even invested a little bit in a startup which addresses uh, this, uh, oh. this example. And we'll come, think... that, uh, Mr. we'll come okay. back to that, okay. Mr. Aspect, but go ahead. <laughs> no, okay. This problem is the problem of optimization of the electric grid. You know, there is production of electricity, mm. nuclear plants, uh, solar electricity, windmills, etc., etc. And uh, you have people who want, who need electricity. And these changes all the time. And optimizing the production, especially now with uh, the green production, wind, Okay, the sun, you can tell me, sun uh, uh, sets, rises and sets at known hours. But the wind, the wind is here, it's not here, etc. It fluctuates all the time. And now there is an element which bothers a lot the electricity company with the development of electric cars, fast charging. You are going to have millions of cars. People arrive here and they immediately will pump uh, many kilowatts of electricity, and they will move, they will move. And the problem is what they call the smart charging grid. And they are seriously looking into quantum simulators for solving this problem. Because if a standard computer takes 24 hours, it's too late. You want to optimize your problem in one minute, not in one hour. So the easy example. But be careful, it's only examples. I'm not a guru and certainly not a guru in business, okay? Don't invest in trusting me. You, you'd make a great guru for us, for sure. Now, more seriously, to summarize what you just told us over the last few minutes, 
I guess that the first point is that looking at the theory, potential for quantum is enormous. And I guess that the second aspect uh, that you developed uh, is that obviously we have the challenge of applying that theory into practice today. But still, uh, when we look at cryptography, communication, computing, those are fantastic opportunities ahead. And we started to, to, to touch with some very practical examples uh, that you, you, you gave, the travel man or the smart greeting uh, in terms of electricity. Um, so may, maybe a question uh, for you, and you, you also uh, touched on, on the, the, the business side of it uh, just a minute ago. Uh, so, so when we think of uh, our audience and the, the French entrepreneurs and the investors, uh, what's in it for them? Uh, how do you see uh, that technology uh, maybe lending in, in terms of business opportunities uh, in the next years? Well, um, uh, I, I am optimistic on that for the following reason. I have seen the academic world in France evolving a lot in the last, let's say, four decades. When I was a student, it was a clear cut between the academic world doing fundamental research, okay, and not dirtying hands to do applications. But this has changed. And uh, now the academic world is convinced that uh, if there is application to their research, to our research, I belong to the academic world, we are deeply convinced that it is good for everybody. It's good for the nation. We need to have companies. Companies make money, who pay taxes, and the taxes are good for uh, paying for our research. So we are convinced, and we are intellectually also convinced that it is fascinating. I would be so happy that one of my progress in, in basic science is used for something useful, okay? So the situation, I think, is very favorable. And as proof of that, there are now several startup companies in the quantum in France, and I'm glad to see that most of them involve people who were my PhD student, uh, which followed my lectures, etc. Because I always told them, look, we do basic research. It's fantastic, but if you have a good idea, don't hesitate, go. And you know the result? When they create a startup company, they ask me, would you like to invest a little bit of money in my <laughs> company? And I say yes. And I say yes, not really because I hope to become rich. I say yes because it's a proof that I approve what they are doing. And it's very important. So the atmosphere in science in France about this passing the information from the academic world to the entrepreneur, in my opinion, is extremely favorable. The government has taken plenty of uh, subsidies and, and also facilitate for people. For instance, if you are an academic and you want to spend a fraction of your time with a startup, you are allowed in certain limits but you are allowed, etc., etc., And even uh, more and more, for instance, on the, on the campus of Paris-Saclay, which is the, the big campus in the south of Paris, which joins Université Paris-Sud, École Supérieure d'Optique, École Centrale, Supélec, etc. On this campus now, really, we have some of these startups which are very close to the researchers. So I think the situation is really favorable. And this, this, this is amazing and this is fantastic. And I think it's great to, to remind that to our audience as well, because 
uh, there's been, in fact, uh, it's a big promise for sure. And there's, there's been a lot of changes uh, in that environment. And therefore, something that we, uh, we can really uh, see for the future as, as a big promise for, for the young researchers who also wants to invest uh, and, and become part of the French tech. Uh, and thank you very much for that. Maybe I can add one point. It's now or never. What I mean is that I don't know if there will be killing applications. But I know that five years from now, we will have a first answer. We will know if there are some useful applications. And if we want to be part of the game, we have to start now and we will know five years from now. I just want to cite an example. It's a startup company called Newcombs in France who started 10 years ago with former PhD students of mine, uh, and they use ultra-cold atom to measure gravity. Now we are 10 years later, and they are a reasonable business, okay? And that's the scale of time. And now I'm involved with other former students in a quantum simulator based on Rydberg atoms playing the role of this famous uh, quantum bits, okay? It relies on first-class academic world by Antoine Boes and his team, and former student of Antoine Boes, so in a sense, they are my grandchildren in science, in a sense. They have this company, Pascal, and I am a founder of this company with a very small participation, but we will know in five years if this Rydberg atom simulator can help the electricity company to solve the problem of the optimization of the uh, smart grid. So I think it's very exciting. And very practical examples. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Angel, you wanted to, to add uh, something. Do you think we have the potential to uh, build kind of a, a French Silicon Valley in Saclay, for example, uh, around uh, quantum computing and technology? Oh, there is no doubt that uh, Saclay uh, will be one of the big places, but uh, you have other places in France. There is, of course, the well-known region of Grenoble, Grenoble and Lyon, okay? There, there should be a, another cluster there, another valley, <laughs> okay? And uh, you have uh, other places in France, for instance, in Nice, in Montpellier, in, uh, in Bordeaux, and uh, there are many places. And you know, France is small enough. Moreover, we have the TGV. So I think that uh, uh, we can have a, a global network. So it's very important to have local operations because when people are, or if they are in the same building, it's fantastic. But uh, if they are, couple of kilometers and you can go with a bicycle, it's important also. But uh, there can be also really a coordinated program between uh, Sacré, Paris, Grenoble, Nice, etc. The, the scale is good to have a, a good cooperation. And, and we're lucky to have uh, the Eurostar uh, exactly. to connect to London as well, right? So. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. This which allows me to go to London when there is something exciting at the Royal Society. I understand you have produced some MOOCs where our listeners can deep dive. Can you tell us more about it? Yes, well, the, the MOOCs are intended for students all over the world. They are on the Stanford platform named Coursera. And uh, these MOOCs 
are serious and it's not quantum optics for dummies it's for okay. uh, students in the third or fourth year of university who already know quantum physics who already know classical electromagnetism and optics and they want to know how to join the two fields to make quantum optics because quantum optics is one of the fundamental technologies for quantum information photons are fantastic quantum objects and to understand photons you need to learn quantum optics and i have two MOOCs. uh well it, it's a kind of joke i cannot resist tell you the first MOOC is called quantum optics one one photon and the second MOOC, of course is called quantum optics two two photons and more a quantum joke to finish that only seems natural thank you professor aspey it has been a real pleasure it was amazing to have you you make everything sound so simple when we listen to you so thanks for that it has been a pleasure to have you today thank you professor thank you for your attention this is it thank you for listening to french tech podcast by la french tech london we hope you enjoyed it find more episodes on our website frenchtechlondon.com and on your regular podcast channels see you soon